God's Word is a lamp to our feet, light to our path. We're going into God's Word this morning, so it can lead us, so it can guide us. And we are in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 4. Romans chapter 8, verse number 4. It says here, so that the requirements of the law, the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Very simple little verse, but a very powerful verse for us to understand today. It's all under the topic of the fact that we are secure in Christ. That includes secure from our past. And the first four verses deal primarily with that. And today we bring that paragraph to a conclusion when we talk about what it does it mean to be free from judgment. Free from judgment. In verse number one, therefore there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. We are not condemned because of Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because of verse number 2. Verse number 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's why we are set free in Christ Jesus. The law of sin and the law of death cannot claim you in Christ Jesus. How is that possible? How could we be set free? Verse number 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. We saw this last week. The law cannot save you, but God can. And that's what he did. So today, we're going to find out the purpose of that. The purpose is here in verse number 4. The great purpose that speaks of why God sent His Son. Why His Son was an offering for our sin. Why God condemned sin in the flesh. It's answered in verse number 4. So that. So that. And then the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Heavenly Father, as we approach this text today... We thank you that your word is our light, it is our guide. And we need that. We need to understand this passage today. For it speaks of you, and it speaks of your mercy, it speaks of your grace, it speaks of the great love that you have for us, that you have accomplished this on our behalf. It's an amazing thing, Lord, to contemplate how secure we are in your love. That includes our forgiveness. So help us to understand this, so that we can have a proper response to who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as I get started here for a minute, Paul, would you do me a favor? My glasses are on my desk. Usually I keep them right here, and I forgot to bring them. And so if you want to hear what I really have to say, uh, I might need those. Let's talk about uh, chapter 8, verse 4. 
What a, what a neat, neat thing to read this verse. A couple of things kind of stand out, don't they? You just scan through it, and I always just scan through it first, and then I stop and I say, what is just kind of flashing on there like that little red light on your dashboard? What is saying, look at me? And I saw two things that popped up immediately from that verse. And the one is the requirement of the law. That kind of stopped me in my thoughts, and I said, whoa, that didn't say requirements. It said requirement. And I said, is it really there's one thing that's required? And so I had to research that. Thank you very much. And the second thing that popped out on that was the phrase fulfilled in us. Fulfilled in us. The requirement of the law fulfilled in us. Those are the main things that I saw when I looked at this. Now, you can see the rest of the verse. It also talks about walking by the Spirit, doesn't it? Which might bring you back to a theme we've been on before for quite a long time this last year in Galatians 5 of walking by the Spirit. And it does have relation to that, obviously. We're going to touch on that just a bit. But today, the primary things I want to look at has to do with the requirement of the law and how is that fulfilled in us. Very important things for us to learn today. Uh, first, when we talk about the requirement of the law being a singular thing, I thought, well, we should try to trace this down and see what is it that is that one thing the law requires. Well, I'm going to picture it like this. Say that you have a coin in your hand. It is one coin. On the one side, you have heads, as we know, and tails on the other. Uh, on the one side, side of this requirement. I'm going to put it as a singular idea, but the fact is we are to be holy. We are to be holy. We are to have a life of holiness. Not a Sunday morning put on your suit holiness. A life of holiness. Now, Break that down just a little bit and ask the question, then what is holy? Holy, there's a whole family of words in Scripture that speak to holy. Uh, of course, the word holy, holiness, uh, you have such words as sanctified. That means set apart. And that's the idea of holy. Uh, even the word saint. You're a believer in Jesus Christ? You're a saint. Did you know that? Yes. You never sign that on your name, though, do you? No, you know, but we, we are saints in Jesus Christ. That means we are holy ones in Jesus Christ. So I think it's important if we are, we should know what that is. And what is this requirement of the law that has to do with holiness? Well, here's a couple of just simple references. So let, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, the Lord said this. I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Does that sound like a command? Oh, yeah. Leviticus 19, verse number 2. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse number 7. 
The Lord said, You should consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now, I just read you three verses out of Leviticus. And you say, okay, but that was just for Israel. That was law to Israel. That was Moses' law. It was for Israel. Well, let me ask you this, then. If it was only for them, then why, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4, a passage written to the church, by the way, it says, just as he chose us in himself, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That doesn't sound like only Israel now, does it? Speaking to the church, it's speaking to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. God chose you to be holy. Does that sound important to you? He chose you, even before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's his plan. Now, if you go to Colossians, if you're following along, you're flipping some pages here, but in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul identifies the Colossian believers in this way. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, and then he tells them what to do, put on a heart of compassion. He identified them. He didn't even ask them if they, they wanted to be. God had already chosen them. And so he says, so, since God has chosen you, and you're holy, and you're beloved, he then tells them what to do. So does that mean God has an expectation? Yes. He's already identified you as holy and blameless. Holy and beloved. Okay. Now, how about this one? In 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 4, verse 3. Listen to this one. For this is the will of God. Ooh, everyone perks up. What? What is the will of God? Your sanctification. Big word to say, be holy. That's his will. Okay, so people walk around saying, I don't know what God's will is for me. Oh, yes, you do. Your sanctification is his will. In chapter 4 here, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So again, it goes back to our calling. And here he sets a contrast. There's a contrast between that which is impure and that which is sanctified. Impure, the whole department of sin, right? Sanctified, the whole department of holy. Where did God call you to be? sanctified. Right? So he now gave us a contrast to what is holy. Impurity is the opposite of holiness. So here's one more. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's verse 15, which for those of you who've been here Sunday nights for the last five years, you should know this one. Or else we'll start all over. Verse 15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, for it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay, that said two things to you, very powerful two things. The first one is 
that you are to be holy like he is holy. Think through that for a minute. That is incredible. That means holiness is not based on our perception of holiness. Our perception is like this. Well, I'm better than the other guy, you know. He's not so good, but I'm better. So I, I got this holiness thing. No. Our comparison is with whom? God. And God is holy. So, that's one thing that kind of stops me right there. And the second thing is this. Where are we to be holy according to that verse? It says, in all our behavior. Whoa. <laughs> okay, so you got the idea? What is the requirement of the law? Be holy. That's what we're called to. Be holy. Is it a high calling? Oh, yes it is. It's an incredible calling. That's what the law demands. It demands for us to be right. To be holy. You know what our problem is? It's sin. Flip the coin over. Flip the coin over. On the one side it says be holy. The other side it says practically the same thing, but in a negated form. Do not sin. Do not sin. That's the same thing. That's the requirement of the law. That's what be holy means. Because sin is disobedience. Right? It's disobedience. If you're not observing a command, it is a sin. Okay? Brace yourself. If you are not holy in all your behavior, what is it? It is a sin. Ouch. That one hurt. Let's let's find simpler sins to talk about. This one touches everything, doesn't it? Touches everything. The very first prohibition in our land was do not eat of that fruit. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Man ate of that fruit. According to Romans chapter 5, because of that, sin spread to the whole world because man sinned. As a result of that, Romans 3 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now tell me if you're exempted from any of this. I want to know. Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. Ecclesiastes. Wow, Old Testament stuff. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Ezekiel 18 verse 4. Behold, God says, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins will die. What you're looking at is the consequence, aren't you? You're looking at the justice. You're looking at the condemnation for not being holy. Law has an expectation. The law has an expectation that we be holy and has ramifications if we are not holy. It's called sin. It's called penalty. Our dilemma, then, is the requirement 
of the law was too much for us in our flesh. That's what we saw last week. Verse number 3. Even the law, the law that requires you to be holy, could not make you holy. It could not do it. But God could. God could. I'm going to illustrate a little bit about the the nature of this this punishment, this justice this morning. I'm going to illustrate it in just a simple fashion, I think, uh, I hope. Uh, but I brought along a couple of items to pique your curiosity. <clears throat> okay, I need Jack. You want to help me out? You okay with that? Okay, come here. Come here. This is simple. We needed somebody who is uh, strong and somebody who's athletic. So far, you're doing good, right? How are you in math? I bet you're good. Okay, so you're really good at math, too. So, uh, tell me something. Hold this banana and tell me, how much does that weigh? (laughs) He's very clever, too. (laughs) It's a four-ounce banana. What do you know? A four-ounce banana. Okay, give me an idea. I don't know. I don't think you should lift that. Well, see what if you could even just get an idea. Tell me how much that weighs. By uh, Maybe try picking it up or use your hands. It sometimes works better. What do you think? Give me an estimate. Wild guess. Well, you're not that far off. You're not that far off at all. Here, I want to ask you, which would you rather have in your pocket? (laughs) The banana. Obviously, the banana would be much better. Okay, math. Four ounces. How many make up a pound? Sixteen ounces in a pound. So if it's four ounces, uh huh. So I need how many to make a pound? Four. Okay. Let's say that this weighs a hundred pounds. How many of these do I need? About four hundred. Very good. See, he's pretty sharp. Okay. Now, say that I handed you a banana today and you put it in your pocket. All right. And tomorrow I handed you a banana, and you put that in your pocket, too. Now you have two bananas. You did that for a whole year. Number one, that'd be a mess. Uh, Number two, you'd have about 365 bananas in your pocket. Pretty close to the weight of this block. Now, you don't want that block in your pocket. You'd rather wear this. Uh huh. Okay, we're going to make a point with this, and I appreciate your help. That was great. Because listen, go ahead. Thank you. Listen to this. Sometimes we say, "Oh, that's a little sin, no big deal." So we put it in our pocket. Tomorrow we, uh, oh, that's a little sin too. We put that one in our pocket. Now, I'm not one to think that accumulating of sins is the concept here, but here's a thought for you: 
how long before the actual weight of what you're carrying equals that when you built it up four ounces at a time? Most of the time, we don't think about sin as something heavy. We don't think of it as something crushing. That thing will crush you. I would, I would uh, suggest to you that one year's supply of bananas in your pocket will crush you too. Because it equals the same weight as that block. How many sins does it take to condemn you? One. Everyone's going to hate bananas now that I'm using it for illustration for sin. One sin condemns you. We don't need to take a whole year's supply in order to say, well, that's enough to crush me. One sin is what Scripture talks about, as that which condemns a man. One sin. Sometimes we look at sin as that heavy block that nobody can move, and we say, well, you know, yeah, I'm not quite that bad. This is where God looks at it. One. One. We say, but this is easier to carry. (laughs) I know. Sometimes you don't take, take sin very seriously, do we? We really don't. One banana at a time. If, if we let it add up, it would overwhelm us. But it's just the one that should overwhelm us. Just the one. One sin is sufficient for condemning us. We don't need the whole weight. One sin is sufficient. How many sins did Jesus die for? All of yours? All of everyone's. I wonder how much that weighed. The scripture says that the Lord was pleased to crush him. When I think of those words, that's what I picture. That heavy block that my Savior bore because it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In that act, That act where Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, in that offering, we saw in verse number 3 of Romans 8 here, in that offering, the requirement of the law was fulfilled. The requirement of the law was fulfilled. Number one, the law required holiness. And was Jesus holy? Yes. And on the other side, the law required condemnation for sin. And was he condemned? Yes. He died for our sin. Jesus fulfilled the requirement that we could not fulfill. God did it through him. Holiness and the consequence that we deserve. The requirement of the law was fulfilled. That's why Jesus said this. He said to the Pharisees one day in Matthew 5, verse 17, that do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then he said again in the very next verse, Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all 
is accomplished. He did it. That's amazing. That is amazing. But greater than even that, I'm going to suggest, as to what is amazing, is the fact that it is fulfilled in us. If this was something that we just read in the the newspaper as an isolated event by some other person in some other place, and we read it, we might say, hey, that's pretty impressive. This man died. He was a holy man. He died for sin. Wow. But when you say that that was for me, it gets very personal. And notice how personal verse number 4 gets all of a sudden. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us. Now we're getting personal. How? How is it fulfilled in us? Well, first let's define us, and that will help. The rest of the verse defines us, by the way. You're defined, I'm defined as the ones who are walking according to the Spirit, not by the flesh. You say, well, okay, we talked about that in Galatians 5, and that's the requirement, we're to walk by the Spirit and such like that. But does the Spirit dwell in you? Yes, that's what a believer is. The Holy Spirit has indwelt them. Now, is the Spirit doing this work to make you walk by the Spirit? Oh, we studied that too. It wasn't us, was it? It was us yielding to what He is actually doing. Now, in a sense, I could say it this way. All of us as believers in Christ, because the Spirit is in us, are walking. Some of us not quite as well, but we are walking according to the Spirit. He is there, and he's not leaving. And by the way, he's going to win, too. The end result is that he will conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So, he's going to do it. Now, some of us, I know, we talked about that in Galatians. We're not not doing what we're told to as well. That's the command. But this is your identity here in verse number 4. As ones who are walking according to the Spirit. Right? Hold on to that. Come right back to it in a minute. How is it fulfilled? Let me give you the word for fulfilled. It's fascinating. It it says to cram, like filling a net. To cram. To level it up, like filling up a hole in the ground. To satisfy. To finish. To verify. To complete. To perfect. To render it full, to fill it to the top, nothing else you can add to it, as one commentator wrote, to fill to the brim. Fulfilled. To fill to the brim. If God has filled to the brim, then there is no room to add to it. There is no room to add to it. If God has filled to the brim. Read the words again in verse number 4. Fulfilled, let me ask you, does it say in us or by us? In us. Not by us. We cannot fulfill the law. We cannot. We cannot maintain it. We could not do it. God did it as part of His great work we saw in verse number 3. And we walked. 
not as a requirement, but as a statement of fact right here. The text has just said we could do nothing. And so don't think for a minute that by your walk you're going to fill it up to the brim. God already did. God already did. He already knew we could do nothing. So God did it. And those who know that will live like that. Those who know that they cannot add one more stitch to the garment of righteousness will just wear it because God gave it to them. They won't be there fussing to see how can I add to this. Those who understand grace would understand that there's nothing else they can add to it so they live in it. This is what it says. The requirement has been fulfilled in you. Walk in it. Let me put it this way. If that thing was in your pocket, you would not be walking. God took that out of your pocket so you could walk. See? The weight has been lifted, folks, so that we're free to walk. The weight has been lifted so we're no longer condemned. The weight has been lifted so that we're set free. The weight has been lifted. The, the penalty has been paid. The weight has been lifted. So walk in it. Walk in it. Back in Romans chapter 3, there's a little passage I just want to read to you. I follow along. This is, I know it's deeply theological, but it starts in verse 21. And it says very important things that we're hearing right now. It says, chapter 3, verse 21, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But thankfully, the next verse comes along being justified as a gift by His grace through, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he, that's God, would be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He did it all. And he did it right. Through union with Christ, by faith. And I'm emphasizing this only through Christ, folks. Only through Christ is this true. The Christian has entered a whole new way of life. He lives according to the rules and the resources of the Holy Spirit of God, rather than the resources of the flesh. John MacArthur wrote it this way, God does not free men from their sin in order for them to do as they please, but to do as He pleases. Do you realize how freeing all of this is? When I say that you're secure from your past, oh, don't take 
credit for it. <laughs> Don't stand up and say, you know, hey, uh, I still have, you know, those things that are still way there. I don't know what you mean, Pastor. I don't feel so free. You haven't been looking at the cross. You haven't been studying what God has done. Because it says that He laid your sin upon the Savior. That Savior paid for it. Done. Right? Done. Here's something I found interesting. When I was scanning through Romans chapter 8 the other day, I was looking for commands. I love commands. Pastors love commands. They say, hey, give us three commands for the people today. Um, there are no commands in Romans chapter 8. None. As powerful as this chapter is, there's not one thing it says, now go do this. It doesn't. It's all statements about what God has done for you and who you are because of it. And so I started to scan through it and I found this in verse 1. We are in Christ Jesus. And really, folks, nothing else matters as far as that concerns, if we are in Christ Jesus, everything applies. If we're not in Christ Jesus, nothing applies. But he made that point. We are in Christ Jesus. And because of that, in verse 2, we are set free. And in verse number 12, we are under obligation. And in verse number 14, we're led by the Spirit of God. And in verse number 14, we are sons of God. And in verse 15, we, are, we have received a spirit of adoption as sons. And in verse 16, we are children of God. And in verse 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And in verse 23, we are waiting eagerly for the redemption of our body. In verse 26, we are helped with our prayers. Verse 28, we are called according to His purpose. Verse 29, we are foreknown. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in verse 30, we are predestined. And we are called. And we are justified. And we are glorified. Can't wait to get to that verse. Whoa, big one. We are glorified. Verse 32, we are given God's Son who died for us. And we are freely given all things by God. And verse 33, we are defended by God. Verse 34, we're represented by Christ Jesus. Verse 35, we are loved by God. Verse 37, we are conquerors in Christ Jesus. And verse 39, we are secure in God's love. That was just a quick view. All these things we are. All statements of what we are. We are. We are. Because of what God did. And I was looking for a command there. I wanted to say, okay, give me something to do. The whole point is, he fulfilled it. It's full to the brim. There's nothing else for you to add. Nothing else for you to add. But in that, there was a word that I read to you a few minutes ago that kind of stopped me. And it says, we are under obligation. Now that too is a fact. But what is an obligation? Something you owe. Something you have a debt for. He doesn't say pay it. He just states the fact. You're under obligation. What is that? 
An obligation? An obligation for what? Don't you sense it? When you think of all that he has done, what is our obligation then? Is it not to respond to this kind of love? We are, we are debtors to this that God has done. We are debtors. Now, I found this interesting because I, I had to explore that word a little bit. And I found that in the King James, you have the word, we are debtors. Well, I went back to 13, I literally didn't go back there. I went to the translation. 1394. John Wycliffe, first one to start pinning English text of the Bible. He said, we are debtors. And then William Tyndale in 1526 said, we are debtors. And then Miles Coverdale in 1535 said, we are debtors. And then the Bishop's Bible came along in 1568. It said, we are debtors. And in 1587, when the Geneva Bible was produced, guess what it said? We are debtors. And then we come all the way to 1611, and if you carry an original King James with you, you'd see it right now in front of you. We are debtors. If you go to 1898, Young was putting a literal translation out on the page, and he said, we are debtors. You could go to the Revised Version, you could go to the Amplified Version, you could go to the New King James Version, you could go to the English Standard Version, they all say we are debtors. NIV, you say, we have an obligation. You look at the Lexham, the newest one that's out on the market now, it says we are obligated. New American Standard, I read to you this morning, we, have, we are under obligation. You know what that says? For six 122 years it's been cried out in our English tongue, we are debtors. We are debtors, we are debtors, we are debtors, we have an obligation. And if this goes on another 622 years, those words will not go away. We are debtors. We are debtors. I want to read to you a passage that was actually a a um, devotional just from a couple days ago. Charles Spurgeon's uh, wonderful devotional morning and evening. This is what he wrote concerning February the 3rd, or it was marked for February the 3rd. Just listen to the words and soak in the words that he says here. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. As God's creatures, we are all debtors to him, to obey him with our all our body, our soul and strength. Having broken his commandments, as we all have, we are debtors to his justice, and we owe to him a vast amount which we are not able to pay. But of the Christian, it can be said that he does not owe God's justice anything. For Christ has paid the debt his people owed. For this reason, the believer owes more to love. I am a debtor to God's grace and forgiving mercy, but I am no debtor to his justice, for he will never accuse me of a debt already paid. Christ said, it is finished. And by that he meant that whatever his people owed was wiped away forever from the book of remembrance. Christ, to the uttermost, has satisfied divine justice. The account is settled. The handwriting is nailed to the cross. The receipt is given, and we are debtors to God's justice no longer. But then, 
because we are not debtors to our Lord in that sense, we've become ten times more debtors to God than we should have been otherwise. Christian, pause and ponder for a moment. What a debtor thou art to divine sovereignty. How much you owe to his disinterested love, for he gave his own son that he might die for you. Consider how much you owe him to his forgiving grace, that after 10,000 affronts, he loves you as infinitely as ever. Consider what you owe to his power, how he has raised you from your death in sin, how he has preserved your spiritual life, how he has kept you from falling, and how through a thousand enemies have beset your path, you have been able to hold on your way. Consider what you owe to his immutability. Though you have changed a thousand times, he has not changed once. You are as deep in debt as thou canst be in every attribute of God. To God you owe yourself, and all you have, yield yourself as a living sacrifice. It is but thy reasonable service. You are secure from your past. Why? Because Christ did that. Christ did that. I'll tell you, if that is not solidified in your heart... The rest of this chapter will not make sense to you. This is foundational to understand how I'm secure in my present and how I'm secure in my future. It's because he dealt with the past. Paid for. Done. Done. As we go into prayer, you might want to talk to the Lord about this. Maybe as you reflect on this past week, you say, Lord, you know, I have not lived up to what you have done. My life does not reflect this kind of grace. And I know you're at work in my heart. Because if right now, if you're feeling convicted, oh, he's at work. <laughs> he's at work. Talk to him about that. Remember, he loves you. He loves you. Heavenly Father, Scripture says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a demonstration of your love. Just to review it again today from your word is a demonstration of your love. That love has never diminished toward us. It has never diminished. It has never diminished toward us. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to see it. Help us to see the power of the blood of Christ in forgiveness of sins. Help us to grasp the idea that you separated as far as the east is from the west. You bury it in the depths of the sea. You hide it behind your back. It is forgiven. It is gone. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Lord, impress that upon our hearts and show us how secure we are in your love. Show us again. We need it. We need it, Lord. Do your work in our hearts. Maybe, Lord, there's somebody among us today who's never received Christ as their Savior. 
Maybe they didn't realize the debt that they owe as far as sin and the condemnation is concerned. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been at work right now in their heart and driving them to see that there is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that by believing Him, they will have eternal life. They will have forgiveness of sin. Lord, draw somebody to Yourself today. If there's one among us who does not know You, do Your work that only You could do to bring them to Yourself. Make them Your child. Lord, You've done it for us. And we rejoice in that. We ask that you do it again. And save another. Save another. For you are able. Thank you, Lord, for your work in our midst. All of us are different now because we've spent this time understanding more of what you have done. Impress it on our hearts. Impress it in our lives, we pray, that we will walk according to our name, according to our calling, according to what you have designed, that we walk by the Spirit. Help us in these steps, we pray, one step at a time, perhaps, but always a step toward you. May it be so, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen.